This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will select sort of at random. Any book from my entire collection is eligible, as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 125th episode of The Quarter Bin, we are boldly going where no Quarter Bin episode has gone before. To Star Trek Telepathy War, number one from Marvel Comics, cover dated November 1997. Since this episode, spoilers, is going to have a guest, I had to do some adjustments in the recording schedule to accommodate that, so we don't have any feedback yet, as of this recording, from last episode, because as of this recording, last episode hasn't come out yet. But we do have a piece of Dial H feedback from the man behind the blog and podcast, Pop Culture Affidavit, and more importantly, the man who serves ably as Stella's intern on required reading. It's Tom Panarese. Professor, loved your Dial Q for Quarterbin miniseries. It was the type of series about also-ran concepts that just really works for a summer podcast miniseries. Even though I've read only two stories with Dial H, I may grab a few of these if I ever find them on the cheap. Well, on the very cheap. The two stories I have read were both post-crisis, published around 1989-1990, and they dealt with what happened to Chris and Vicky after they grew up. In New Teen Titans 45 and 46, that after they had hung up the dial and their relationship ended, Vicky fell in with a cult called the Children of the Sun and learned that there was sinister power to be had if she dialed O-R-E-H. She does and goes about as crazy as Francis Kane did in the pages of The Flash. It's not a good story. Her heel turn is one of those cliché, you dumped me and I fell in with a crowd that did drugs and sex and got me into a cult stories, and I think if I were his editor, I would have taken Marv Wolfman aside and asked him if he was okay. The other story is from Hawk and Dove Annual Number 1, In this one, Chris is working with Star Labs to find out how to control his powers. He no longer needs the dial and is involuntarily changing every hour. I don't know where he goes from there. Well, that is my Dial H experience. But if you do any shows about creating your own stories or letter column triumphs, please count me in on both. As always, love the show. Best, Tom. Well, thank you, Tom, and I wanted to take this chance to congratulate Tom on putting together a very nice summer miniseries of his own over on Pop Culture Affidavit. That was It Came from Syndication, a series of episodes covering game shows, talk shows, comedies, sci-fi and fantasy, and, of course, Baywatch. Excellent batch of episodes. We also heard from second-time feedbacker, Dr. Anthony the Engineer, 
You know, Anthony, that makes you a regular now. Just saying. Professor Allen, I would like to compliment your Dial Q for Quarterbin shows this summer. I was unfamiliar with Dial H and was intrigued by the concept. So when I ended up at my local shop for their Labor Day sale, I picked up an eight-issue run of the new 52 version of Dial H. Brace yourself, though, Professor. I had to buy them for the earth-shattering price of one dollar each. Although this is a 66.7% discount off the retail price, all I could think of was, the prof would not approve of this. You have poisoned my back-issue buying, sir. Now, if I remember, Dr. Anthony the Engineer, you are in the northeastern section of the United States, where, from what I understand, there is only one quarter bin in the entire region, and that's in Vermont. So I hesitate to do this. This only applies to you and your fellow New Englanders. But I'll allow it. He continues, I had read positive reviews of this title and figured I'd give it a shot. I enjoyed these. They are extremely weird and started building mythology to the hero dialing power. A crossover between this and Justice League Dark at the time would have worked. I would like to see Dial H introduced into the larger DC magical universe. Dr. Anthony. That is an interesting thought. Dial H is generally thought of as a silly concept and would need, I think, an edgier reboot to fit in with Hellblazer and Deadman and the Spectre and that crew. And maybe that's what the new 52 version did. Although traditional Dial H and Scooby-Doo team-up? Now that I'd like to read. If y'all remember, back in episode 122, Sir... Sir Martin of Grey totally got it done by revealing that he used the resources of the Scotsman newspaper to track down the creator of the wonderfully named Hasty Pudding, Mr. Dale Houseman. Well, I missed this somehow, but shortly after that episode went out, guess who we heard from? Dale Houseman! I know, you were hoping it was going to be Hasty Pudding himself. No, it's Dale! <laughs> Over the years, Dale says, I've been given a lot of mostly humorous grief over the name I created of Hasty Pudding. But now, thanks to Dr. Ange, I realize I could create another superhero named Johnny Cake, perhaps as Hasty Pudding's youthful sidekick. I don't know that Ange needs that encouragement, but I do see where you're coming from, Dale. Very happy to be mentioned on the show in connection with my splendiferous creation of decades ago. I found the entire podcast vastly amusing, and thank you for that. I have already mentioned this to Martin, but I do have a small correction to make. I did not move back to England, and do indeed still abide in Minneapolis, as I have since 1972. I was born in Kings Lynn, Norfolk, and lived in Albion until six when my dear mum married a U.S. soldier, as many young Anglo-birds did at that time. A small but entirely unimportant mistake, but I could not let it stand. As for my being a bit over the acceptable range of Dial H submissions, 
who could argue? But the late Harlan Ellison himself also created a character for the book, and I believe he was firmly adulterized <laughs> by then. Dale did not specifically say, suck it, Sean Ross, but we all know that that's what he was getting at with that comment. Enjoyed the show very much and will be listening more. This was the height of my nebulous comics career, which I had long abandoned for surrealist poetry and art and other degradations of maturity. Again, thank you for speaking of my little creation, Dale M. Houseman. Interesting that Dale is still in the creative world, doing, as he put it, surrealist poetry and art. And to think, it all started with hasty pudding. Glad to hear from you, Dale, and keep up the good work. We heard also for the first time in a long time from the podcaster known in the tabloids as Florida Man, direct from a facility somewhere in the Everglades. It's the irrepressible shag. I do want to emphasize that this letter came to me before shag's most recent bit of tabloid notoriety. You remember that time they caught him running down the street naked? Well, except for a dark towel tied around his neck, screaming, I'm not naked. I'm cosplaying Batman. Allegedly. Anyway, this is from before that. Just wanted to clarify. Allegedly. My dearest professor, I recently had the opportunity to catch up on one of my favorite podcasts, the Quarterbin Podcast. Wanted to share some thoughts on episodes 109 and 119, your excellent coverage of the Marvel Magazine. What a great find! Reprints of some wonderful comics. I've read all of these, FF, Daredevil, and Hulk stories, so it's fun revisiting them through your miserly lens. Daredevil, being one of my favorite characters of all time, it's thrilling to hear your enjoyment. The Iron Man stories are new for me, but with that creative lineup, I can visualize the adventures perfectly. I also found the Hulk a challenging character to engage with for many years. It took Peter David's run to really grab me. Perhaps trying some pad issues will help you engage. And I find I enjoy the stories after Las Vegas most when Dale Keon was on the book. Well, thank you for that lucid and reasonable recommendation. Looking forward to more of these magazine issues. How many episodes should we expect? And how much collectively did you save by buying these reprints for a quarter compared to buying fully priced back issues for the original stories. Quite a savings, I'll bet. Now that I've hooked you with compliments and financial sleight of hand, uh-oh. What the holy heck? Have I truly found graft, corruption, and dirty dealing at the core of the quarter bin empire? Issue 12 and a half. Threw off the entire numbering of the podcast? Is that what I'm to believe? And you've been hiding this fact all these years? How dare you, sir? How dare you? Have you no shame? Is Lord Doom aware that his much-lauded 2099 coverage was in fact a sham, appearing on the zeroth episodes rather than the ninth episodes? I'm sure you will not be happy with 
with this subterfuge. And to make matters worse, you made the entire Corbin public listening community accomplices in your heinous lies by asking them all to keep it a secret from me specifically. Your conscience in all things truthiness. I'm ashamed for you and expect an appropriate apology and retraction in an upcoming episode. Your former biggest fan, the Irredeemable Shag, the Fire and Water Podcast Network, P.S. and Alpha Flight Crack. Seriously, is there any depth too low for you? Wow. Now, Shag also posted this as an open letter on the relatively geeky webpage, and so I feel it's appropriate in a similar manner to reply to his screed, I mean manifesto, I mean letter, publicly. Shag. First, it's wonderful to see that you've earned computer privileges from the state of Florida. Good for you, buddy. See? This is what can happen when you stay on your meds. These details were mentioned regularly in episodes 109 and 119, but I understand that the voices in your head sometimes get in the way of your lucidity. I have acquired five magazines of the six published from Quarterbins, meaning we'll continue to cover the issues on episodes 129, 139, and 49. That was covered in the counting by tens section of your math class. And yes, I will compute the cumulative savings from those original cover prices. That was a very good suggestion, Shag. See? This is what happens when you stay on your meds. In reference to the 2099 series on the nine episodes, remember that 2099 also has a zero in it. So your concerns are slightly overblown to the point of being delusional. And as far as the overall numbering scheme goes, you may know that Dr. Doom has been a comic book mainstay for decades. Having been subject to the willy-nilly numbering, renumbering, dual numbering, and decimal numbering that hashtag Big Comic has foisted upon an unsuspecting public for years, the minor discrepancy of a single episode number that occurred here at Relatively Geeky can easily be overlooked. An alpha flight crack? You think that's as low as I can go? Just wait till the randomizer lands on old Flamehead. The puffy sleeve jokes have already been written. They're just waiting for the correct episode to be deployed. But thank you for your concern, Shag. I certainly hope that I've answered all your queries, and I look forward to seeing you again at next year's parole hearing. Maybe 2019's the year you get out. Hashtag, it could happen. With love and concern, Professor Alan Quarterbin Middleton. I know that that was an emotional opening feedback segment, so let's take a quick break here, and when we come back, me and a guest will talk all about Star Trek tel- Telepathy War number one. By the way, the excellent TV show Babylon 5 did a 
telepath war subplot. So if I accidentally say that instead of telepathy war, like I almost just did at some other point in this episode, I'm sure you guys will understand. You seem to be a forgiving sort. Thanks in advance. This is Tokyo, once a city of six million people. What has happened here was caused by a force which, up until a few days ago, was entirely beyond the scope of man's imagination. Tokyo, a smoldering memorial to the unknown. An unknown which, at this very moment, still prevails and could, at any time, lash out with its terrible destruction anywhere else in the world. Hi, folks. Luke Giaconetti here. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Do you like giant monsters? Or as they're called in Japan, Daikaiju? Monsters like Godzilla, Rodan, Gamera, King Ghidorah, or Mothra? Do you like more obscure monsters, such as Gappa or Yangari? Do you like giant heroes like Ultraman, or super robots like the Shogun Warriors? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then I think you might like my podcast, Earth Destruction Directive. I'm a dedicated fan of all things Daikaiju, and I'd like to share that with all of you. Please check out Earth Destruction Directive at twotruefreaks.com. Earth Destruction Directive, where we turn your Daikaiju dreams into city-smashing reality. Twice is a pattern, three times is a habit, and now four? This is darn close to an inviolable law or a crippling addiction. You just can't quit me. (laughs) Now somehow, we missed this at our first opportunity back at episode 25, but since then, every 25th episode, we have had one constant guest. Sometimes he's been solo guest, sometimes part of a small group, or sometimes part of a huge pack of people. But this man (laughs) has been here for episode 50, 75, 100, and now 125, so I guess we say welcome back to the quarter bin regular special guest, Paul Spataro. Welcome back, Paul. Always good to talk to you. And always good to be here. And I'm always, I always get excited when I'm asked to guest star on shows and or guest on shows. I don't think I star on anything. You had it right. And and I always enjoy getting an opportunity to speak to you, my friend. So I'm very happy that you invited me back again. Start priming myself episode 150 soon. (laughs) Exactly. Now, uh, we lined this book up for you specifically because of your co-hosting status on Listen to the Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. So talk just a little bit about that show, how it got started, how long have you guys been doing it, and I guess you're about halfway through the life of Deep Space Nine at this point? We're actually a little further than halfway right now. It got started more as a uh, as a joke than anything else because on Was that one of the April Fool's? Not an April Fool's. Okay. They did a, uh, a what you call it, an assistant editor's ah, month on right. Two True Freaks. And we came up with the premise of doing 
uh, for Star Trek Monthly Monday, if you remember, Scott and Chris would do a original series episode and a TNG episode. So for Assistant Editors Month, Sean Engel, Andrew Leyland, and I decided to do uh, Star Trek Monthly Monday as if it was Deep Space Nine and Enterprise. And we recorded it as if Sean and Andy had already done three full seasons and that I was just joining the cast for the for the first episode of season four, which was the episode when Worf first joins the cast of Deep Space Nine. And then we just decided, you know what? We really, really like Deep Space Nine and let's let's do a uh, an index show. And we started from episode one. Unfortunately, due to circumstances that make us very sad, our cast has changed. Yes. Uh, Sean very, very uh, sadly passed away, I guess, when we were in season two or season three. I don't recall. Uh, and Andy and I, we, we both were very introspective and talked to each other a great deal. And we decided as long as we weren't trying to re-record any episodes that we had already done with Sean... You know, we, we would pick up where we left off, and then Dr. Bill joined us after a little while. And now we've just added Dave Weeder to the group also, so there's four of us doing it now. And it's it's a great deal of fun. It's just a chance to go through every episode one by one. And it, it's funny when you do this stuff, because we love the show. And and we, we talk about it, and, and I think we, we gush over it more often than not. And yet we, we see these these reviews on on itunes where it's like if you don't like the show why are you even reviewing it and it's like you know i guess for some people you can't gush enough yeah that one seems to have gotten stuck in your craw or it's just become a repeating bit or maybe a little bit of both it's probably somewhere in the middle because <laughs> uh, because i'm not really that hurt by it i just am surprised it's confusing, it's really it's confusing. And it's, i mean it's the same thing with the comics you know you, you do a show and you're reviewing all these things and clearly we love comics there's no question about it but every once in a while you're going to come up come up with one that's a, you know a clinker and if you don't if you're only trying to do the best of the best all the time kind of the cliche thing you know if everything's the best then nothing's the worst on deep space nine would, would that be your favorite tv iteration of star trek it's my favorite offshoot hmm. you know the original series is my favorite okay. But there's so many different podcasts that have done the original series. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty that have done DS9, but not as many. So <laughs> I, I felt a little bit more comfortable with that. We're, and uh, Oh, yeah, I was starting to say we're, we're currently around, as far as recording goes, we're around the middle of season five. So the show ran seven seasons. Oh, so we have about two and a half episodes left to go, right. two and a half seasons to go. I'll confess that my loyalty to Babylon 5 kept me from deep diving into DS9. But uh, so for me, it's next gen would be my probably my favorite iteration. And uh, that shows you guys talk about it. uh, I think uh, uh, next gen usually passes the flip test. Is that what you call it? You know, you're flipping through the channels. It's actually I don't know why, but it's become the flick test. (laughs) You know, any time we control. Anytime we come up with any sort of uh, strange saying like that, I just assume it's an English thing, and that's how Andy put it in there. <laughs> Fair enough. Reasonable enough. But uh, So I haven't watched much Deep Space Nine, but uh, you know, just so you and Dr. Bill and Andy know, that has not kept me from listening to and enjoying Listen to the Prophets, a Deep Space Nine podcast. I'm glad that you're enjoying it more than anything else. Mm-hmm. How about on, on this side, on the comic book side? The license has landed on just about every possible comic company you could think of. Yeah, well, the yeah. last fifty years, it absolutely <laughs> has. From Gold Key 
you know, to Marvel, to DC, to I'm trying to remember Malibu. IDW. I think IDW might have it now. I think most recently, I think that's the case. The quality ranges from absolute crap to (laughs) pretty enjoyable stuff. Yeah. And I I hate to to let the cat out of the bag early, but I think the book we're covering today is kind of pretty enjoyable stuff. (laughs) So as a a crossover, because as we've talked about, I love the crossover. Mm. We did an episode of Back to the Bins. Uh, Andy, Sean, and myself, where we covered the first three issues of the Marvel Deep Space Nine comic when it came out. And quite frankly, we walked away saying, boy, that was crap. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and, and it was funny because our original thought was maybe as we're doing episodes, we could find out what comic came out in conjunction with that episode and kind of cover the comic as well. And after we covered the first three issues, it was like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> in that case, that iTunes reviewer would have been right. Yes. And, that, and that's the – I don't want to be positive about any, about everything right. because it just kind of takes away the teeth of the positivity as far as I'm concerned. But I also don't want to be one of these people who, who isn't willing to say something stinks. So, you know, it kind of goes back and forth on it. I, I just want to be honest and give honest opinions on things. But – the bottom line is we wouldn't do the show if we didn't have a love of it because yeah, it's just of too of much course. of a commitment otherwise. Of course. For me, in terms of Star Trek comics, it is the occasional issue here and there that I can find for cheap, including a couple of those old – was it Gold Key or Whitman? Gold Key. Either or both, yeah. It's, well, Gold Key, and I think what they did was after the Gold Key run finished, I think they came out with several Whitman oh, like, books, and yeah. they, they were very thick. Mm-hmm. And I think they were reprints like – Three or four issues of right. the gold key, uh, and most of the gold key stuff is just yeah, awful. yeah. I mean, yeah, you hear the stories, and you know, it's clear that you know the artist over in Italy or whatever had you know maybe three photographs to work from, <laughs> and didn't know what a Vulcan was supposed to look like. And it's something we've talked about on Back to the Bins a lot of times. You have a dilemma whenever you're dealing with licensed products too, though, because you don't want stuff that's too deeply photo referenced because it usually looks stiff and not not very animated. Uh, on the other hand, you don't generally want it to go too cartoony. You don't want them to go too much where they're trying to change him a little bit. So it's it's almost like yeah. you almost can't win in the art department on that. And again, and I'm letting the cat out of the bag early. I think this issue we're going to cover does it fairly well. Mm-hmm. And I think on licensed products, most of the time, fairly well is about, it's about as good as you're going to get. What, what I look for is I want the characters to flow like they would in a normal comic book. I want to see the action moving and all of that. And when they show the faces, I want to be able to recognize who it is. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a mirror image of the person on TV so that it, now we're talking about heavily photo referenced. Right. But I want to be able to tell, you know, that, OK, that's Mr. Spock, not Mr. Chekhov. Mm-hmm. It does become a pro- you know problematic sometimes. Uh, Bill and I recently covered one on on Back to the Bins though, uh, an, an episode of a Honeymooners comic, right. and I thought they did a great job on that by making it more cartoony, mm-hmm. not trying to make it look like it's you know a, a live action recreation on on paper on paper, uh, and and that actually worked fairly well for me you know back in a comic from the 1950s. Right. Bringing it back around. Uh... To Star Trek, you've got the John Byrne sort of photo novels, New Voyages, I think it's, it, it is, and I've read a handful of those, and they are very strange, obviously. It is a, it's a weird reading experience. 
I haven't read any of those yet. I haven't had an opportunity. I think if I found one in the quarter bin, I'd pick it up. <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm not so quick to lay down big bucks on, on newer comics anyway. I'm not. Yeah, to be fair, I'm cheap enough that I'm not too big on laying down big bucks on older comics either. Uh, I'm, I'm always looking for a bargain, and I think that's, that's probably... That's why you're welcome the... on the quarter bin every 25 <laughs> episodes, buddy. I was going to say, it's probably the foundation <laughs> of our friendship. <laughs> Well, let's get to our specific uh, issue uh, for this episode. This is Star Trek Telepathy War, number one. Had a cover price of two ninety nine U.S., but even worse, $4.20 Canadian. Yikes. Those poor Canadians. Oof. Well, after spending that price for this, they are poor Canadians, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so for a quarter, this was a very satisfying 91.5% discount. Now, the cover, according to the comic book database and uh, the Grand Comics database, is by unknown artist. They managed to unearth that, huh? <laughs> I mean, I don't want to spoil it, but it's a pretty cluttered cover. Let me just say that for starters. We've got Commander Riker battling an alien, a hand-to-hand, various other characters and actions are in the background, including sort of Spock is looming over. We've got the Enterprise shooting right at us. The text on the cover says, At last! Next Generation meets Deep Space Nine meets Starfleet Academy. I'm going to go out on a limb, and I'm going to say I believe this cover is drawn by the same artist that did the interior in the book, Patrick Zercher, because there was a page, and when we're looking through it later, I'll, I'll try and point it out. There was a page inside where... It reminded me a lot of Rob Liefeld in the way they drew a face. And I'm seeing a lot of that in Commander Riker's face here. Interesting. Since since I'm seeing the same thing, Mm -hmm. I'm thinking it's probably the same artist. Right. Uh, To me, the cover is kind of a hot mess. For me, there's way too much happening here. I think exactly the same thing. I think you could have gotten away with having the the spaceship. Is that the Enterprise, I guess? It's hard to tell because there's so right. much right. words yeah. in front of it. I, I think you could have, could have gotten away with having that be probably about double the size of what it is. And in, in place of Riker grappling with the uh, Jem Hadar, you could have taken our two uh, telepaths who were mind-linking and put them front and center. Now you lose out a little bit there because now you don't have recognizable characters right. on you, the cover. You're, you're, you're trading off a key plot point. <laughs> For a key, let's see if we can sell the comic book. <laughs> exactly. I think it would be a more compelling piece of art, even though it wouldn't have the same recognition factor. Right. But you could you could even, if you did that, because now you're uncluttering it, you could probably even increase the size of the Star Trek The Next Generation meets Star Trek Deep Space Nine meets Starfleet Academy and have that be a little bigger so that people see it and say, oh, I want to get this because it's right. all of those people. And, you know, I... I it, it's also just the nature of licensed work, especially one that's a crossover. But uh, I mean, your your legal eagle eyes can verify this. I see at least eight registered trademark or TM, you know, circle R's or TM's on the logos. And at some point, that's just ridiculous. I mean, you stare at it long enough, you, they you see them all. I mean, don't take this as an anti-attorney statement, my my good friend. But those are kind of annoying. I don't think it's an anti-attorney statement. I'm not taking it as such. I'm taking it as an anti-copyright statement. There you go. Now, were I a copyright uh, attorney, I might be offended by you. 
but I am not, and I've never practiced copyright law. I mean, I'm surprised the picture of Spock doesn't have a, like I say, very cluttered, but I guess you have to communicate that this is part of the crossover. So you have to have both the words and characters representing all of these iterations, all these versions. You, you of, really don't, though, um, unless you want to count the Gem Hadar as, re- as uh, representing DS9. You don't have yeah, any well, DS9 true. representation yet. Crazy. Uh, the story, Reality's End, was written by Chris Cooper with art by Pat Zercher and Steve Moncuse. And this is the last issue of a mega six-part Star Trek story, which I admit I did not know when I pulled this out of the quarter bin and said, oh, this is like an exercise issue. Let me flip to the back. Oh, it says the end. Perfect. It's like an annual. A long, contained, one-issue story. Whoops. <laughs> oh, well. It, had, had you not gone to the last page and went to the actually the first interior page, you would have seen crossover books include Deep Space Nine, 12 and 13. La, 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 I can't hear you. I can't hear you. La, 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 la. <laughs> I've learned at the quarter bends. You start at the last page. Okay, maybe you start at the first page, too. So you have five, five issues leading up to this yes. one. Yes, okay. I admit, it was my fault, okay? I'm owning that now, Paul. I'm owning mm-hmm. that. Now, as as I told you earlier, uh, when we were not recording this episode, I had picked up, and I think this should get me some uh, some oh, definite props on the show. Here, but I had uh, I had picked up a uh, DVD ROM of all of the Star Trek books. It was all uh, the Marvels, right? And it, it was all the Marvels, all the DCs, all oh, of these. Wow. The gold key. I mean, it was it's chock full of books. So, I mean, I'm I'm seriously thinking I paid less than a penny a book. I, actually, you know, I may be overreacting because I don't know if there's 500 issues, but let's let's just say for argument's sake, there's only 200. So now I'm paying uh, what is it, two and a half cents an issue? I think I'm still doing good. That, that's why we have you on here regularly, buddy. And the more no money I deal. get, the more often I'm going to be on. <laughs> As we said, this is the last of a six-part story, which crossed over every title that Marvel was publishing at the time uh, within the Star Trek license. So we had Starfleet Academy, two issues of Deep Space Nine, and then an issue each of Star Trek Unlimited and Starfleet Academy. And then it all wraps up in this one shot. At the time, this was the biggest crossover event in the Marvel Star Trek line brought together characters from every live-action TV version that had been produced up to that point. Yeah, this came out around the beginning of Season 6 of DS9, okay. if my figurings are correct on that. So this would be right in the middle of, right in the middle of basically the Dominion War, which it takes place as part of. The, uh, the brief backstory of the storyline so far is that a group of Starfleet cadets stumbled onto a Dominion plot to have Jem'Hadar soldiers exterminate not only the Telosians, but every telepathic race in the Alpha Quadrant. And nobody believes those punk millennial kids in the Academy with their Fortnite and listening to that silly music. So they were told to get off Starfleet's lawn, and uh, they are in fact sentenced to death for going against the ban on Talos, which I guess was was in place since the days of the cage in the, the original series. Pursued by the Enterprise, the cadets flee to Deep Space Nine, 
the cadets and the combined crews have to set aside their differences to repulse a Jem'Hadar and Cardassian attack. But that attack was all a ruse to draw Starfleet ships out of position. And as we begin this final issue, the Federation has come to the conclusion that Krypton is due... No, that none of their <laughs> ships can get to a particular Federation conference in time, which is where the Jem'Hadar are heading to wipe out all those powerful telepaths, just as the cadets had warned all along. So, Paul, can you get us started with the synopsis for the first part of this issue? Sure thing, sure. But it's not your data that I argue with, it's your conclusion. Oh, no, wait a minute, I was <laughs> back to Krypton, I'm sorry. So the issue starts on the planet Romulus, where Mr. Ambassador Spock has been preaching his message of peace and cold logic, but he's become mad in both anger and crazy ways. Light years away on star date 50796.5, there will be a quiz. Oh, you've got to remember that, <laughs> that star date. Captain Picard is tired of being manipulated and manages to rescue the real Captain Decker the one that shapeshifters impersonated as part of their ruse, and a Jem'Hadar is rescued, Lib-R, and he has a warning. Meanwhile, on Alaya 2, where the telepath conference is being held, Luxana Troy is making out with a red-skinned dude named Uxamel, but he has to leave her to save his daughter. They telepathically mind-meld, which kind of weirds me out. <laughs> Meanwhile... Deanna Troy's empathy has gone haywire, but Beverly Crusher tells her not to worry. Things will get better once they reach DS9. On DS9, Libar, the Jem'Hadar, recounts their ruse, but he's trying to help. And he gives some help because he believes that helping the Federation hurts the shapeshifters and brings his people one step closer to freedom. Freedom from the accursed white. Worf and Odo and a cadet debate what Libar said and whether they can accept his help. They decide that the Enterprise will go to the conference at Alaya and the Defiant will guard DS9. Jadzia gets a little jealous about the attention Worf gives the blue-skinned cadet. Oh, Picard yeah. decides, yeah, you know, he's still got it going, that Worf. <laughs> Picard decides to take a shortcut to Alaya through the Badlands. And Bruce Springsteen sings the entire time they go through. <laughs> Riker isn't sure, as, as they already lost the Voyager to those plasma storms. Data turns off his emotion chip and takes manual helm of the controls. Picard hopes his android reaction time can get the ship through safely at top speed. Back on DS9, Deanna's empathy continues to go haywire, while the Vulcan cadet, Tapril, has lost emotional control. None of the medical crew knows what's happening until Nog enters, whistling. All right, thank you. I'll pick it up at this point and bring us, hopefully, safely home. Data has gotten the Enterprise through the Badlands. Riker's beamed down with a landing party to evacuate the conferees. But Picard has to cancel the evac as the Enterprise finds itself under attack and can't lower the shields. As Riker tries to move the telepaths to someplace safe, a phalanx of Jem'Hadar beams in. But the telepaths help out Riker and his team. They're actually able to hold their own on the planet. But above the planet, Picard is not doing so well in his space battle and is pretty mad at Libier for not helping as much as he'd promised. Bashir thinks he has it all figured out. The attack on the conference 
was a setup, with the real threat being a meme virus, a contagious thought that leaves no physical evidence. And with the incubation period, telepaths and empaths can function normally for a time until they fall apart. Cisco and his team head for the Enterprise and are able to use Data's warp space trace to safely navigate the plasma storms themselves. And the Jim Hadar ships that we're following are not able to follow them through the Badlands. You gotta fly through them every day and. Le- I just wanted to make you feel at home. That was my Dr. Bill impersonation. <laughs> you want to stay away from that, please. Oh, Trust yes. me. Wait, let me get this caffeine-free diet Mountain Dew, and then wait. Uh, using the analogy of a song that you just can't get out of your head, like, say, Badlands by Bruce Springsteen. Edem, the telepathic cadet, tries to release Deanna from her infection as Picard's shields fall or fail. Liebeer finally figures out the Jim Hadar aren't really trying to attack. So you've got crosses and double crosses and strat- strategies all over the place. While they discuss, Cisco and the Defiant arrive. He tells them he has to keep the telepaths on the planet in sort of a, a quarantine. As the Dominion threatens to annihilate Picard, the Federation cavalry arrives in the Jim Hadar retreat. While Cisco and Picard try to give each other credit for miraculously getting the, all those ships to the planet, a Talosian materializes and says that they did it. You might want to think of this Talosian as sort of a deus, and he's appearing out of an ex machina uh, to some extent, because they created the necessary illusion. The meme cure thing worked was beamed to Talos, and then at full strength, and they were able to drive the opponents from this place, and that makes them even. And the Talosians would prefer to not hang out with primitives like the Federation ever again. The Talosians visit Spock as well, who suspects that the Talosians were in fact behind the entire affair. It turns out that one planet, Zox, did not get the cure in time, and the planet fell into chaos. The four cadets are eventually exonerated, victory is celebrated, and Picard and Decker talk about how to balance their roles as soldiers and explorers. The end. So, uh, overall, big picture. Thoughts on the story? It felt to me like a two-part episode of one of, you know, of of, uh, The Next Generation or DS9. I liked it. I thought it was enjoyable. I didn't, at least, you know, on on first glance, maybe if I looked much more closely, maybe I'd find some plot holes to fall into. Mm -hmm. But it it felt like it was fairly well plotted out, Mm -hmm. fairly well thought out. The characterization seemed good. Overall, you know, big picture, I enjoyed it. I thought the artwork was... As good as you're going to find, certainly in the 90s, for for licensed properties. Those are are two potential strikes. Exactly, you know, and, and I don't mean to just damn it with faint praise, because because it's a a good enjoyable comic to read from from a a story and art point of view. But like I said, you know, it, at at that time with a licensed property, there's a good chance you were going to get crap. Yeah. And and I you know I don't think you did at all here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Obviously, not having read the first five parts, you don't know if anything from there, you know, plot wise was was dropped along the way. But you know, from what we had, what we knew. This certainly seemed to wrap things up well, uh, bring the story to a reasonable 
close, you know, one of our catchphrases over here on Relatively Geeky is that endings are hard. But this one, I think, worked pretty well. It was pretty satisfying. I, 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 I liked the way that the story wrapped up. He said the plot elements seemed to work well. I thought most of the characters, again, seemed pretty well in character. How about, like, the crossover aspects? Uh, <laughs> the, the crossover aspect overall I like. Two things, I guess, that stood out to me is one is based on the pilot episode of DS9, Benjamin Sisko does not like Captain Picard because Captain Picard, when assimilated by the Borg, uh, effectively killed his wife. <laughs> so he's not one of his favorite people. So to see them working together and not have a little bit of a little bit of tension between them kind of mm-hmm. didn't seem quite right to me. That's the only part where I thought the characterization might have failed a little bit. The other thing that just jumped out at me is, you know, we have the Enterprise crew and we have the DS9 crew and we have uh, Starfleet Academy, which is people who I don't really know. Exactly. So, you know, like the crossover aspect, like it's almost like, well, why are we wasting time with these people I don't know when, when there's, you know, Worf and Data and Riker and, and Cisco and Picard to, to concentrate on? But I think realistically, it was a good idea for them to create these other people because it gives them so much more dramatic, you know, so much more of a dramatic leash than when you're dealing with, you know, just purely the licensed characters. So I understand why they created the Starfleet Academy characters. It's just, uh, you know, as somebody who hasn't read all those books, they don't jump out at me as people who I definitely want to hear everything they have to say. Again, I have the uh, DVD ROM, so when you told me we were going to do this, I did read the entire run, uh, which is probably why I didn't dive qu- deeper in to see if there were more plot holes, because I was reading a lot more issues. Uh, but just the same, I, I enjoyed this, and I thought it was overall a you know, solid read. The biggest thing that just didn't feel right to me was the whole sentencing them to death part of it. Just seemed like a bit of an overreaction. I don't know. That doesn't seem to uh, maybe fit into Roddenberry's vision of the perfect future. But it doesn't seem to be a Starfleet way of doing things. Yeah, exactly. I, I did like sort of the epic scope of this. You know, if you're going to pull all these characters and shows and comics together, give them something big. Oh, uh, they definitely did that. You know, so. And I, you know, I, I think both uh, the, the DS9 and the next gen characters were served pretty well. Now, you didn't have the classic morality type of plays necessarily that, uh, like, the original series had, but I do think they captured some of the next-gen and DS9 elements pretty well. You know, what do you th- I mean, did it seem like a Star Trek story to you? If you if yeah, I thought you know it did. I, mean. I thought it did. Uh, and there's different, you know, different people have different definitions as to what mm-hmm. comprises a Star Trek story. Um, a lot of People criticize Star Trek stories that are action-based because they're not science fiction-y enough. Right. And the people who feel that way, I think they'd feel that way about this issue as well. Because this really isn't a big science fiction issue. This is more of a space opera. It's a space uh, opera, military, you know, space military. A lot yeah, of that, I, I, I like those elements of the strategy and the, this was a ruse, but no, this was a ruse. It turns out it all was a ruse. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Like th- those elements of it. You know, it, it fits in more with what they did on DS9 with the whole Dominion War, mm-hmm. uh, which really was the focus of what was going on on the TV end of things at the time this came out. So it makes what sense. What do you that think of the DS9 elements, the characters, those plot points? 
thought the, the DS9 elements were good. I thought, you know, as as somebody who really loves that show a lot, I think they could have done a little bit more with some of the characters. Um, you know, in particular, like Odo really doesn't get a moment in the sun in this at all to speak of. Uh, but overall, you know, I, I thought they... Uh, I thought that that they did well with it. I think, like I said, it fit well into the Dominion War and, and, you know, something that they would do. And it made, I I liked, and I guess if you want to talk about science fiction-y aspects of it, I kind of liked the whole aspect of it where they were going to, you know, ruin the telepaths with this, uh, you know, this mind worm that they were putting in that would just make it impossible for them to, you know, to, to... Used, utilized their telepathy and that when they would, it would infect the person you were talking to and likening it to getting a song stuck in your head. I mean, because we've all experienced that. And it's funny because very often the song that gets stuck in your head, in fact, I'd say more often than not, isn't really one of your favorite songs. (laughs) It's just a song where a part of it just gets stuck and you can't get rid of it. And how do you get rid of it? by trying to think of a different song and, and kind of overwriting it in your brain, which is exactly what they do here. Right. So it's, it's, you know, it, it's very relatable and it does have kind of a science fiction element to that. You know, the whole thing with the Telosians, I liked. I thought that built on the story from Cage a little bit more than what we even got in the Cage, where in the Cage, more or less, they were presented as fairly benevolent and, and you know, it, it came off as them being more socially awkward uh, that they would think, Oh yeah, no, they'll made and everything will be fine because <laughs> we can give them whatever they want, you know, whatever fantasy they want, as opposed to being actually malevolent uh, here. They're, they're presented as a little bit more questionable in their motivation that they want people to fix their planet so that it could be, you know, you could live on the surface again. Uh, and eventually, you know, at the end, they kind of take control over this Jem'Hadar army that they used to do that, uh, which is, you know, not necessarily the Starfleet way of doing things. That brings us back to the point that I, I mentioned earlier about the death penalty. It's like, you know, based on their first presentation, why would you make the penalty so severe for visiting this planet that it's punishable by death? I guess the thought is you could potentially endanger the entire Federation by going there because now you're exposing the Federation to these Talosians whose motivations aren't quite as pure as, you know, what we would hope they would be. It's not Uh, just off limits. It's really, really, really off limits. We mean it. You certainly are running a grave risk getting on the wrong side of I I think of like the story of the Garden of Eden, you know, where you could have everything, but just not this one apple tree, you know, or even, uh, what is it? The 2010, uh, the sequel to 2001, you know, Mm -hmm. where they say, uh, you know, you can't visit Europa. That's that's what, what it brings to mind for me. Uh, but, I, you know, I like those elements of it. I thought it was really cool to, you know, tie it together with the original series that way. On the art side, we talked about the likenesses. And for me, I, I didn't always dig Riker and Picard in particular. Those ones work less for me. But I thought most everyone else was pretty good. And maybe it's just easier to work with aliens. I don't know, but Spock, Worf, Odo, Nog... I mean, they all, I thought, looked good. I didn't think Loaxana looked like she was on model. Uh, I, I, I don't think I would have picked her out as being Loaxana if they didn't tell me it was her. I think Diana actually comes out pretty good. She yes. looks like, uh, what's it, Marina Sirtis. Data was a little bit hit and miss. 
I thought Cisco was well drawn. You know, it, it, I guess you know we go back and forth, and just just looking through the book a little bit, there's the page when Admiral Decker is is kind of giving his ideas, and there's a, a page where he's kind of front and center in the middle of the page, and his panel kind of bleeds over two pages. Uh, that to me, that his face there, and actually his face in the subsequent drawing as well looks to me like Rob Liefeld drawing. Uh-huh. And that's and that's the one that led me to believe the cover shot of Riker also looks similar in that regard. And you got to think if this is, you know, when this is, came out, Rob Liefeld would have been one of the hot artists. This is, uh, was it 1997? Right, right at the heart of that era. So he would have been influencing people and, you know, certainly could have been an influence over, over the artist to hear. We we have both certainly seen licensed properties with more inconsistent art. Oh, absolutely. And, and less on model art. So, with a licensed book, it's almost the, you know the art. The main job is to not distract you, not annoy you. Yeah, <laughs> you know, unfortunately, for, for that in, is a big in, part of it. Mission accomplished on this. Yeah, uh, in particular, I like the Talosian the way he's drawn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, he's drawn as a mental image that he's not physically there with them. So he's kind of translucent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but other than that, mm-hmm. just he, he looks like they did in the cage only as if the makeup was slightly updated. <laughs> right, right. That's fair. As you said, ending stories is difficult. I can tell you I've read quite a few novels where I'm riveted every page and I'm wondering how they're going to wrap it up. And then when they wrap it up, I think they did that. <laughs> So this I found very satisfying. The whole thing with the with the Talosians actually saving them by making the Jem'Hadar see that there's all these ships coming in right. that weren't really there. And yes, they, it and, is a and, Deus Ex Machina, had, but it's but an they, existing plot line. And and they had laid the groundwork even earlier in the issue a couple of times, talking about the planet and and the Talosians. So it's it it is unfair to say it comes out of nowhere. And I just think overall, you know, the whole idea that, that the, uh, you know, that the Dominion would attack in that way, kind of going subterfuge, you know, having sneak, sneaking them in and then making, you know, distracting them with other things. Uh, I think it fits perfectly with the universe as it existed on DS9 at the time. So overall, I, I felt a very satisfying read. And again, I'm, I guess I'm letting the cat out of the bag. Well worth your quarter. <laughs> Well, I mean, let's, you know, we, we don't do letter grades over here. No mm. bars of gold press latinum. Like you said, everything here, it's more, let's think of it as more pass-fail. I would pay 50 cents. What? No, book. whoa, whoa. So much for having you back again. <laughs> 50 episodes from now, if that's the way you feel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I enjoyed it. I like the crossover aspect, you know, something, again, sweeping and big in scope. And there's something, you know, and I, I like if you're going to do something, you know, big in comics, do something that you can't do on a TV show. You know, use that use that budget that you have in, in comics. You know, do something that the original medium couldn't do. And I think that they did. We didn't have all these properties on TV at the same time, right? So you couldn't have done this type of crossover on TV. Do it in a place where you can do it. You couldn't do the crossover because getting all these actors together would just you know they wouldn't have the budget to do this Mm -hmm. uh but you could you know all the the effects and everything that happened in it are very easy to picture in your mind right 
seeing it on the screen. You know, while while you couldn't do this, it's very easily very easy to picture it okay. on the screen on your TV screen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so credit credit for the comic uh, in doing that. And again, we said in terms of a of a final chapter, and for me, reading only that final chapter, I thought they ended it uh, pretty well. So definitely worth a quarter, no doubts. And I'm going to give you a quarter so, you, so that you could spend fifty cents on it too. What? Wait, what? I'm going, to mail the, you, I'm going to mail you a quarter. Does the math work on that? I'm not sure. I, I, you know where the math doesn't work? Because I'd have to spend like <laughs> whatever it is, 50 cents to mail you the quarter. Oh, foiled again. That's why George and Kramer could never figure out how to make that can recycling plan work. <laughs> the math just doesn't work. Well, that does wrap up our coverage of Star Trek Telepathy War number one, bringing episode 125 of the podcast to a close. Mr. Paul Spitaro, thank you so much for joining me on this one. Oh, thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. So I look la- forward to 25 issues from now. <laughs> there <you> Episodes. Go. <laughs> well, one last time, tell our listeners all the various places on the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Um, I'm on three shows, one of which we talked about extensively is Listen to the Prophets. Uh, The second one uh, that I've been on now for uh, ever uh, is Back to the Bins. If you're ever interested in how like a corporate takeover works, you need to study Back to the Bins. That was impressive, my friend. That was the way, the way I just the way I just kind of <laughs> absorbed it. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say Shanghai, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's fact that the bins is is a definitely a uh, labor of love for me, uh, where we review old comics. Uh, our rule of thumb is the comics are supposed to be at least ten years old. Sometimes we break that rule, but more often than not, we stick by it. Uh, and then uh, my other show is Is It Jaws where we take movies and we put them up against what I've created as the Jaws scale, uh, which goes from, you know, a classic movie down to Boy That Stinks. Uh, And uh, we've had movies that hit every level of that scale so far. So uh, to me, that's another one. They're they're all a lot of fun, or I wouldn't do them at all, because there's no pay involved. (laughs) Well, again, it's always good to talk to you. And you, my friend. So next time in episode 126 without Mr. Paul, it'll be very lonely. But I'll do my best to cover Time Walker number one from Valiant Comics, cover dated December 1994. But really, we're just killing time till episode 150 when Paul will come back to discuss something, right? Oh, absolutely. And in the meanwhile, if you want to hear... Professor Allen and I talking again. They will, we know there will be at least one Back to the Bins episode coming up in the not-too-distant future. Exactly. Or the recent past, depending on when we <laughs> release our episodes. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the episode or Star Trek or you wonder why I keep having Paul on the show, feel free to contact me. Until next <laughs> episode, I'm Professor Allen and he's... Paul Spatero. I will see you in the quarter bin. The quarter bin podcast is part of the relatively geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available 
at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.